0: Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always, well, uh, one of my co-hosts this week, the other one is is lying sick in bed. Uh, Drew, how are you? It's, it's me
1: today, Yeah, it? or this week. <laughs> How long this last, yeah <laughs> uh, uh all good, I'm all good, yeah how are you
0: well, i'm I'm here, I'm here, I'm not sick, <laughs> but it's been a hell of a week, yeah, that's a whole other story, yep, yeah, um, yep. yeah, drew, what have you been up to
1: not a lot, really, so uh this week, um, my partner and I went out to the Exmoor coast, and uh we saw just gonna list them all off to uh to you, so we saw two foxes. Uh, Black cap, great spotted woodpecker, chiff chaff, lesser horseshoe bats, longhorn beetles, shield bugs, ladybugs, hoverflies, dragonflies, labyrinth spider, nursery web spider, and lots and lots of butterflies, including red admiral, swan white, copper comma, silver wash fertility, dark green fertility, and I can confirm a high brown fertility, the gold dust, and I've got lots of photos of uh, one of them as well.
0: Yeah, I hope you'll be putting those up on our social media.
1: Maybe. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was a a great day. Uh, I should also say that i proposed to my partner on that day as well that's obviously very significant um <laughs> but yeah it was always going to be a good day really um unless she said no obviously but,
0: uh, <laughs> well, but congratulations
1: thank you very much but yeah made all the better by all the wildlife that uh, that we saw as well it was i mean pretty close to perfect day if not definitely Oh well, no, no it, one one animal eluded <laughs> us which was an adder and ah oh. um, i mean it's it's not much to be disappointed by, to be honest, with comparison to all that stuff that happened. And we hmm.
0: saw Oh, that's very good news. Congratulations to the pair of you. And I'm yep. sure the listeners will, will say the same. And they bet. Sure
1: because I had to, I, well, I didn't have to, but I mean, she suggested it, although she didn't actually realise what was happening. I thought she sort of had a, I thought she was onto me, but she suggested um, a perfect place to actually do it. And I I I just did it. Was to uh, when we were looking at the bats. It was in a very small church, and um, in order to propose, because they they lived in that church and they made it certainly their home and excreted all over the floor, uh, <laughs> I had to kneel in it in order to propose. So,
0: yeah, but no. bat poo's so not bad.
1: No, it's not. It's it's all it's all dusty, isn't it? But yes. That's, oh yeah. Um,
0: Sorry. Micro bat poo is not that bad. Fruit bat poo. Fruit
1: bat poo is. Yeah. We don't have we don't have any of those. Um, not wild, anyway.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> well, well, that kind of beats anything that I've done this week, which has not been very much at all, actually. Um, when, when you've been this, busy, I went to Whistling Pound um, oh, yeah. on the weekend, uh, which is a, a reservoir um, near the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, which they've been saying that we've had droughts and all these sort of water shortages. I must say that's the fullest I've ever seen that reservoir in my entire life.
1: It rained really hard. Oh, when when did you go there? Because it rained really hard yesterday, last,
0: like last weekend.
1: Oh, right. okay, yeah, not.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, it, it's quite a nice reservoir. We didn't see much other than Canada geese, and I did manage to see a, a black cap, but that was about it. So, mm-hmm. uh, my my nature spotting this week has been a bit rubbish. Although I did three D print a green cheek conure skull, which oh, is yeah, nice. nice and accurate. So uh, that that'll be used for uh avian anatomy classes when i get around to teaching them next year mm-hmm. so that's about it from me that's all I've, I've pretty much done been kind of boring but i had a lot of other stuff getting in the way
1: well happy for this week for to have made up for your shortcomings of a week
0: yep i'll have to get out and do some stuff yeah shall we um jump into the news in the meantime
1: i guess so aaron's not going to say anything is he so i suppose I suppose we are <laughs>
0: Right, well, we're into this week's news. Um, Drew, what's in the news reel in your well, best got... Aaron voice? <laughs>
1: um, I can't do it. I can't do an Aaron voice. I don't think he's got... He, he doesn't have that got... sort of a... He doesn't have a specific enough voice, I don't think. Um, no. I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment, Aaron. I'm sorry if it.
0: If it is, but... <laughs> this will make you feel better, is us insulting
1: you. Yeah, oh. yeah, I guess so. Um, but I've got his script here, and I'll read it out as enthusiastically as as he would like me to. So here we go. As regular cupboard dwellers will know, here in the Natural History Cupboard, we like to keep you updated on the big news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. But we don't always have time to get through them all. So let's jump into the Natural History Cupboard newsreel and bring you up to speed.
0: So sex life of rare leopard print frog revealed. I mean, Mm. who doesn't love the idea of that? It's a very cute looking frog and it literally looks like it's been painted to be leopard print. Uh, But scientists have braved 50 degree heat and venomous snakes to track down a leopard frog, sorry, leopard print frog, virtually Mm. unknown to science and learn how it reproduces. The Argentinian conservation scientists are fighting to protect the tiny Santa Fe frog, which is under threat uh, as its habitat is one of the world's driest forests. Um, They discovered it hides in caves, emerging only to to call for a mate. For the first time they found tadpoles of the species so
1: mm. yeah nice and then from bbc online avocet chicks hatch for the first time in east devon uh, so two avocets were seen foraging on the axe estuary in the spring before brooding eggs by the beginning of june in the Seaton wetlands uh, the two chicks have since hatched this is the first time we've had avocet chicks in the county uh, or at least we know about
0: interesting mm. so Non-sho- well, non-shocking news for you, but apparently shocking enough that a report had to be done. Sure. Uh, dolphins, whales and seals not protected by UK government report files. What? I know. <laughs> but they've been too good. Seeing dolphins and whales in the sea enjoying their natural environment uh, is a dream for most, but a new report from, uh, by MPs has found some marine wildlife, I'd say almost all marine wildlife, is being failed by the UK government. Protections for these species are poorer compared to other countries. The Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee, uh, EFRA, found. I've not honestly heard of them before. Some of the threats to these animals include underwater noise, pollution in the water, big one at the moment, uh, and climate change. But these creatures play a key role in maintaining healthy ecosystems and help support economies which rely on coastal tourism. So, yeah, you can see that's probably not going to go very far with the current government.
1: Mm. oh well uh yeah and then swans nesting by busy somerset road have been given police assistance so that's right listeners in america uh, who may be shocked to hear that our police aren't too busy harassing black people to do something worthwhile. Well. uh some somerset oh, they, police they do
0: both they do both but you know
1: oh, sure yeah a little bit here but that's more institutionalized isn't it um less sort of direct and violent so Somerset police instead have been placing traffic-slowing measures around a swan nest on the A361 on the Somerset levels following a series of near-misses as drivers swerve to avoid them.
0: No luck catching them
1: swans, then. No luck catching them swans, then. Anyway, so nearby cafe owner Claire Chedzoy said everyone applauded the assistance, calling it fantastic. Hmm.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit intrigued. How close is the swan nest to the the road?
1: Oh, it's right, right next to it.
0: So they're not the brightest of swans, these
1: ones? No, 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 no. No, it's right <laughs> next to the red.
0: Oh, well. Uh, and finally, um, stowaway African huntsman spider found in Edinburgh suitcase. Oh. A large African huntsman spider has been found in Edinburgh after it's stowed away in a traveler's suitcase. Uh, suitcase. The Scottish SPCA uh, has quarantined the 10 centimetre spider, which is not that big at all. Uh, which is discovered at a property in the city's Boswell Drive. The animal charity said that the resident had recently returned from a work placement in Africa. The huntsman spider was found uh, found in a warm and tropical regions, including Africa, Asia, and Australia. Well, uh, the traveler managed. To- <laughs> yeah, pretty much. the uh, The traveler managed to capture it in a plastic box, and the Scottish SCP uh, SPCA officers have taken the spider in and have said. It's very fast. If you had to sum up Huntsman's in one one word or two words. Uh, it's that's,
1: quite that's quick. <laughs> uh, and then finally, also Africa, um, African painted dogs have been spotted in Uganda after for the first time in four decades. So the Ugandan Wildlife Authority said uh, in a statement that I quote African painted dogs, commonly known as wild dogs, uh, which went extinct in Uganda in the 1980s, was sighted on Monday morning around the Naras River in Kadepo Valley National Park. Wow. So, very good. Mm. Um, and yeah, so those are all the news briefs. Um We've got our main article as well, and our main article is a little bit longer. Um It's kind of two articles, really, because there's a response here as well. But this week's main article uh we find out that more british nineties tv presenters have turned out to be bellens. Um but I should quickly <laughs> I should quickly note that we're not talking about Jimmy Savile like Bellendry. That's that's way that's that's, that's monumental. That's level. monumental bellendry This is this is quite different. And maybe actually I should be a little bit fairer because there is uh I do Jess, because uh, there's a few things to be said about the things that they said really. But yeah, so this is about Monty Don and Alan Titchmarsh. Now I'm familiar with Alan Titchmarsh because my parents watched Ground Force when I was a kid,
0: oh, uh, yes.
1: which Alan was on, obviously, and he was on it's with British
0: uh, Institution that
1: one. It, it was a British Institution, absolutely, yeah, what well, is, and he was on uh, alongside Tommy Walsh, who was uh, famous for being a builder, and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right, and uh, and Charlie Dimmock who is another gardener, and I was assume I always assume that she was contracted to never wear a bra, um, or it was personal <laughs> choice. I don't really know, but yes. Anyway, I'm not that familiar with um with Monty Don. Uh, perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on him, Gareth. Do you know? Oh, well, I mean, I, I
0: don't tend to watch Gardener's World. Um, I have watched it every now and again. Like mostly if I'm either at my parents' or my mm-hmm. parents are here, because my mum quite enjoys watching it but it's a bit too uh, it's a bit too far from my like tastes of gardening. Yeah. You know, it's a bit too quaint country garden type sort of and these are some roses that we're looking at but he's very sort of he has got a clearly very large garden with lots of uh, fancy stuff, you know, in it and yeah, he is quite a famous gardener here mm-hmm. in the UK but uh, same with same with Alan Titchmarsh as well. Both of yep. them quite famous in the uk for for basically being gardeners yep. but, uh, yeah but yeah oh, well true what have they been doing what have two been doing?
1: what they've been what have they been doing? doing what are they doing for me to call them balance um so the news vendors covering this story unfortunately are the ones that are filled with more excrement than the early 1800s london uh namely the sun and the telegraph and um, apologies for mentioning either of those names um, but they're the only ones that are actually covering this this whole story now because we have to shift through the butthole ejector of these two outlets we're going to uh, have a little bit of fun with it Um they are both awful obviously but they are different and i'm going to read out the first sentence of both articles and see if you can work out gareth which one it's from Ooh. so the f- so the first one is i quote Wild gardens are puritanical nonsense, say TV gardeners. An untouched patch of ground is not a garden, whatever fashionistas might think, say Monty Don and Alan Titchmarsh. And the second article from the second news source says, Gardening experts say homeowners are being brainwashed by a new trend. Alan Titchmarsh and Monty Don have slammed an increase in wild gardens, describing (laughs) them as puritanical nonsense and insist Brits should not be made to feel guilty for gardening for pleasure. Which one which one was the sun and which one was the telegraph, Gareth?
0: I'm I'm gonna say the sun is the second one. Oh yeah. And the telegraph is the first one.
1: You would be right.
0: Hmm. I mean, yeah. I don't know why. It's not like the sun has ever done sensationalist news articles before.
1: No, and they're obsessed yeah. with things slamming something else. I don't <laughs> think I've have you ever been slammed, Gareth? I've I don't think I've ever been verbally no. slammed before. No. I had to put the word verbally in there, because Jess just looked at me. Anyway. So, obviously, both articles are awful. One is written for middle-class Tories, who think they're upper-class, and the other is for working-class Tories, who are the most stupid variety because they think billionaires are their friends. But anyway, comparing <laughs> filth aside, those excerpts give you an idea of what's going on here. So the unkempt mm. wild garden uh, has been steadily growing amongst avid gardeners, so much so that, I quote, even weeds were featured at this year's Chelsea Flower Show. And Good
0: God, Beaver... not weeds. Yeah.
1: And a beaver-themed rewilding Britain landscape won the title at the show. Disgusting!
0: Jeez, oh, the hippies the, are in charge. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the the people the people listening to this are obviously intelligent enough to know that the word weed is nondescript and it means nothing. But actually, I should add that all those invertebrates that I said that uh, Jess and myself saw on the day that I proposed, they were almost all of them were on stinging nettles, which. Many oh, people nice. would, would consider a weed there was a, so much life on those nettles and so much life well getting life from the nettles as in eating them but anyway back to the article uh, the gardener's world presenter and fellow expert alan titchmarsh both criticized the recent fashion for adopting a laissez-faire approach to lawns and weeds out of a moral compunction and doing as little to a garden as possible in order to promote wildlife can you tell that 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 particular excerpt was not from the sun by the way
0: Strangely enough, using laissez-faire, yeah, that doesn't sound very sun-like. And compunction, yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Two
1: syllables. Yeah, yeah, words with just more than two syllables. So, Monty Don said of this rewilding trend, and this is a long quote, he said, I sense a degree of guilt about this at the moment. It is as though a so-called wild garden that mimics natural conditions is somehow worthier and more moral than one in which mankind's creative skills and more obviously played out. This is puritanical nonsense. If you want a truly wild garden, then simply walk away. Leave any patch of ground completely untouched by human hand, and it will happily become whatever it wants to be. The result might be beautiful and richly satisfying, as well as very good for the wildlife of all kinds, but it will not be a garden. The deliberate and skillful evidence of human handiwork is the opposite of trendy rewilding, and completely, triumphantly beautiful. And Alan Titchmarsh said, again, another quote, not quite as long Gardening is about growing things, sowing seeds, taking cuttings and beautifying our little bit of earth to feed us body and soul. It is there to improve our lives and our outlook at the same time as being hospitable to birds, bees and other forms of life. And yet, if you've been brainwashed by current trends, you would assume that that, uh, that the gardener's is theirs alone. And the less we interfere, the better. I will have none of this. I don't know <laughs> if he said if he used so much victory. I will have none loss. of this. I have none of this. Um, but he also argued that not properly cultivating a garden will limit the number of plant and animal species that are able to thrive there. So regardless of their comments, this year in the Chelsea Flower Show, the central gardening philosophy was uh, of one entrant was that weeds are heroes, and Gardener's World presenter Rachel the Tame, or Thame uh, claimed ahead of the competition that killing weeds is old-fashioned. And attempts have been made in recent years to promote No Mo May, during which gardens are allowed to let their lawns grow wild to aid wildlife but experts in quotation marks it doesn't say who are skeptical about putting ecological morality over human pleasure to a motivation for, uh, as a motivation for gardening now this is a hot topic and you can uh, you can start by saying that puritanical is a strange word to use for rewilding because it's um, it's not about destroying or limiting well, maybe not opposite necessarily, because puritanical is basically by it's supposed to mean limit limiting your pleasure. I guess. Well,
0: I I definitely think of gardening within strict boundaries to make things look a certain way is far more puritanical yeah. than allowing a certain area to have weeds and to have natural plants.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: far um, more puritanical.
1: Yeah, rewilding isn't about. Uh, limiting pleasure in, in something if anything it's quite the opposite because you want to see you want to see more stuff um yeah. and you and you want to you want to get pleasure and joy in 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 seeing it all and realizing that you're encouraging it into your personal space uh or close to it but yeah i think their comments show a fundamental ignorance of what rewilding actually is rewilding isn't just standing back and doing nothing at all which is what they seem to think um, in which case, they'll be right to say that people who are doing nothing at all aren't doing it right, because that's not what rewilding is. And uh, that's that kind of gardening is it doesn't really help. So the UK's environments, obviously, in particular, are heavily mismanaged, but healing them requires management, not doing nothing. If a native mm. deciduous forest has been cut down and replaced with a conifer plantation to repair it, you don't just leave it and do nothing and walk away. And it's just expect the old woodland to come back. You have to actively manage to repair it. And it would be great if we could solve all problems in conservation by doing absolutely nothing at all, but that isn't the case. Um, so uh, NEP wrote a response um, to Monty Don and Alan Titchmore's comments, and if you're not, if people listening are not familiar with NEP, uh, it's a iconic estate in West Sussex that has championed rewilding since 2000 and has seen massive, massive gains. And that makes them far more qualified to comment on this than than I am. So I've got again another long sort of quote uh, to read out to you guys, but it's very important, um, and it's a, it's a great way of of responding to this. So the head gardener uh, Charlie Harper at NEP shared his take on Monty Don and Alan Titchmarsh's views on wild gardening, and the estate has invited them both to come and see for themselves the work that uh, NEP itself is doing. So Charlie said, Monty Don and Alan Titchmarsh have made their uh, views well known on the trending wild approach to gardening. As a gardener, I can sort of see where they're coming from. But what isn't too helpful is what comes across as the all or nothing view. When gardens were, uh, could provide the solution to reversing biodiversity loss, 88% of us are lucky enough to have them in some capacity, and the garden area of the UK is nearly five times more than the National Nature Reserves. Think of the opportunity. I manage the gardens at the NEP estate. Again, this is Charlie, not myself. Uh, <laughs> known for its uh, rewilding projects. I'm, you know, I'm not that venerable. What we've learned is that rewilding is not just abandoning land. I would be out of a job if it was. Uh, The key to creating a mosaic of different habitats, which Alan and Monty don't acknowledge, is disturbance. In the rewilding project at NEP, we have animals to graze, browse, rutal, etc., which sculpts the land and creates a range of varying habitats, homes for an array of different species. And here is the crossover. In the unique domestic context of the garden, uh, the gardener is the keystone species. Active gardening is therefore actually needed to create a dynamic landscape which provides different opportunities for wildlife we take our horticulture seriously here in our rewilded walled garden we are active and thoughtful stewards we grow things take cuttings sow seeds and beautify but our mindset is a bit different we take our cues from nature thinking about the role of each plant and what it can provide for wildlife nothing in nature is uniform much like no garden is the same and that is what is beautiful about gardens it should be celebrated so yeah basically what he said was much better yeah, than what yeah. i said but uh, mm. yeah so I'll, I'll also add as well that just for sake of bias really that um or the lack, the lack there of it that monty don last year said cutting grass burns lots of fossil fuel makes filthy noise and is about the most interesting you can do to wildlife so he can't be all that bad if he's against laws well, um
0: well, listen, i've got an interesting thing to add to that yeah yeah go for it as i was as i was looking for stuff Along the lines of this, because um, I was I was the one who initially found this article. You did, yeah. And passed it passed it to you, Drew, to uh, yep. to elaborate on. One of the first things, if you type in Monty Don Wildflower Garden, it's, oh, yeah growing advice. Monty Don's Six Steps to Sowing Wildflower Meadows. Mm-hmm. Sowing Wildflower Meadows uh, with the Duchess of Cornwall. Monty Don How to Grow Wildflowers in August. Basically, he's he's uh, all about growing wildflowers, but apparently not allowing them to grow in your lawn or, you know, sort of area that you want to leave to go natural. So right. <laughs> the word hypocrite comes to mind very much so. Okay. Um, I mean, the other, the other aspect of that, I would say, is just like those people from that estate have said, trying to actually get wild areas in anywhere takes a huge amount of work, even just... Yeah the patch of lawn that I've allowed to grow long and grow wild. My plan already for next year is well before next year is to strip out all the grass from that area Mm -hmm. and plant in specific seeds for next year to grow. Yep. So that's an awful lot of actual work to make one area that will just be a patch of lawn, but it will have more wildflowers coming through it incredibly hard. So it's, and it's also within the bounds of a garden that has areas that are cut and areas that have garden beds and fruits and vegetables and everything growing there as well. So it's not, it's not just left to go wild. Like they said, if it was that easy, you wouldn't have to do anything. Um, It takes a huge amount of management in even just a small garden to be able to achieve that wildflower effect. But saying that even just allowing the grass to go long for just this this one year so far the amount of insects that we've seen out in the um in the grass myself and, and my family has has been amazing we've had grasshoppers and crickets and all sorts of different uh, moths and butterflies that we've noticed in that just just from letting it grow long and go to seed
1: mm-hmm. yep
0: uh, yep yeah. it's been um, really good
1: just out, out of interest i'm sure you i'm sure you've done some some research for in your planting of seeds and stuff for next year to, uh, to like for like wildflowers mm-hmm. and things like that um have you been advised to plant yellow rattle
0: i have seen the controversy over yellow rattle that oh, seems how, to, Have you? there's a, there's a bit of an, an issue some people like it some people don't i don't know um what have you I mean, heard
1: put put it this way at my workplace yellow rattle is like is the one yellow is rattle the one. is the is, yellow rattle is like wildflower jesus um uh, it kills grass, basically. It, com- it heavily competes with grass and kills grass, and therefore it will then uh, give the opportunity to other wildflowers. Other well, wildflowers that's probably
0: why as many people don't like it as much then. Or why probably, it's yeah,
1: because they just want to graze sheep.
0: The one thing that I do have prepared so far is some ragged robin Uh Oh, yeah, seed. nice. That does like the ground in my garden mm-hmm. um, because it gets very boggy in the winter. So.
1: um but yeah, so to to just wrap up this article, then I obviously I, I hope that Monty Don and Alan Sitchmoss take up uh, Nep, Nep's offer and go and have a go and have a look, and then perhaps we don't have to lose another ninety celebrity to more scandal and all thought out opinions. Um, but if they don't take out uh, that invite, then um, Nep can by all means extend it to us if they like, because we'll we'll happily come out and uh,
0: oh uh, yeah and have yeah. a
1: look around. Love that. That'll be great. Mm. With thanks.
0: <laughs> right well shall we move on from our news articles shall we head on back to a time when life was at its most perilous state really now well, no even more so than now <laughs> wow as you'll see even more so than now wow there were past monkeys it's the creature feature right well we're into this week's creature feature And this week, we are going to meet an animal that has not only managed to face down the greatest mass extinction event that the planet has ever known, not caused by us. We are probably causing the next greatest extinction event. Yeah. Go humans. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it not just uh, faced it down, but walked out of the other side as the dominant land animal on the planet. Now, alongside this absolutely amazing achievement, It's also been the keystone bit of evidence that proved a major geological theory that changed science forever. So what on earth could this animal be that we're talking about? Well, let me introduce you to Lystrosaurus. So some important scene setting for our journey with Lystrosaurus. Uh, It starts all the way back in the late Permian era, 259 million years ago. So, you know, a decent, decent chunk of time here. So the mm-hmm. Permian was a very, very odd time for life. It was also a very bad time for life in uh, some aspects as well. The Permian climate was extreme, to say the least. It was seasonal and it was characterized by mega monsoons. Something-
1: mega monsoons.
0: <laughs> it's something you would expect to hear, some sort of horrible B-grade, horror, uh, like, sharp type thing, you know. But these were these were big for a very good reason. They were basically monsoons that uh, would have had nothing in the way across the Paleo-Tethys Ocean until it made landfall on Pangaea. Now, Pangaea is the uh, landmass that today is all the bits of landmass, basically. It's everything. uh, All the major continents are all squished together at this point. They haven't started to break apart. In fact, if you think about the continents where they are today, they are in the way of oceans. The biggest ocean, obviously, being the Pacific Ocean, and that's also where we tend to get some of the most extreme storms because it's a large gap where storms can actually form, pass over a large area, and hit with real force. Well, if you imagine that over a huge area uh, of the Paleo-Tethys Ocean, when it would have hit uh, areas of Pangaea, it would have caused a lot of damage. There's quite a bit of evidence for this along the western margins uh, of what was the Paleo-Tethys Ocean. Uh, in fact, there's evidence of these mega monsoons hitting uh, what is the what was the uh, the rainforests of Huang Tang Basin of Tibet. Uh, and these would have been enormous seasonal variations uh, in temperature uh, and aridity, causing huge areas of these forests to be swallowed up by uh, landslides and, and water uh, pouring down and in flash floods, burying animals as well. So it was a pretty harsh environment where a lot of these animals evolved in. Uh, And it was about to get even harsher. The Permian ended with the most extensive extinction event ever. It is is the event that almost reset the clock or reset life as it is. It's known as the Permian-Triassic extinction event or the Great Dying um, uh, by other people. And it's when 90 to 95% of all marine species became extinct, as well as 70% of all land organisms. That is a huge, huge amount of things going extinct. Um, You would have looked around and it would have been almost a silent place to be at this point. It is also the only known mass extinction of insects as well, apart from maybe the one that we are causing for them at the moment. Recovery from this event took roughly 30 million years for ecosystems to bounce back a giant amount of time. things to fully recover and in this this time we had trilobites completely disappear they would thrived since cambrian times but basically became extinct at the end of the permian we have talked about this in our trilobite episode but this was just one of a few species that went extinct this apocalypse was mostly caused however by magma or magma in the form of what is known as flood basalt pouring onto the earth's surface uh, in now what is called the siberian traps for thousands of years leading up to this extinction event, the earth was being polluted by these Siberian traps. Uh, And they contributed to this environmental stress that uh, essentially led to this mass extinction. So alongside the reduced coastal habitat and in highly increased uh, aridity, uh, which also would have been a big driver of extinction, based on the amount of lava estimated to have been produced during this time period, the worst-case scenario is the release of enough carbon dioxide from these eruptions to raise the world temperature by five degrees. That is a giant amount in temperature. Now, I think we've what are the? I think our latest prediction is that the Earth is going to be two degrees two. Water. Yeah, two. Yeah, and that is that is enough to basically cause mass extinctions of things at the moment. But five degrees is enough to push, well, the world into chaos essentially. And that's yep. pretty much what happened. So um, you can see parallels with what we're doing and what naturally occurred. Hopefully we ne- we don't basically cause our own Permian mass extinction. But this five degree uh, increase, uh, and by the end of this, uh, the plucky lystrosaurs just kept on. They just uh, basically managed to sort of keep on going through and and just sort of really... Adapt for as much as they possibly could for life on the edge, um, and we'll t- we'll touch on their adapt- adaptations a little bit later on. But first, what did it look like? How would you best describe a Lystrosaurus, Drew?
1: Um, it's a stout little reptile boy with um little downward tusks, and uh has a a general demeanor of
0: um not not giving.
1: A, a flying toss.
0: <laughs> well, yes, you'd you're probably pretty accurate there.
1: It looks well, at it, they they look at each other and they go what do we say to the god of mass extinctions? <laughs> and they all call out
0: not today. Not today. <laughs> well, Lystrosaurus, which its name actually means uh shovel lizard. I mean I don't personally think they look like they've got any shovels on them but I think it's to do partly with their their sort of tusks. can be best summed up as a tusked pig turtle. I've heard some people talk of them uh, like that. Um, They're heavily built herbivorous animals, approximately the size of a pig. So there's the pig bit. Uh, They have no teeth in their mouth, apart from two tusks that point downwards on either side of a beak, a bit like a tortoise. So this is building up that picture now um uh, it was a member of the dicynodonts now the dicynodonts are a group of animals uh, that include some of the more famous uh, species that you may have heard of if you haven't heard of lystrosaurus you may have heard of placyrias uh, if you were one of the people like myself and drew who grew up watching uh, walking with dinosaurs it's in that very first episode being attacked by a postosuchus
1: yeah it used to be used to come straight on after uh, after ground force <laughs>
0: Did it? No, I don't know. I don't know. I, I was in Australia when, when it came out, so I, I don't know whether it was on Afterground Force, but fair enough. Anyway, yeah. there are also other species that are slightly more famous as well. Uh, the, in fact, the largest of their entire family of dicinotons, the elephant-sized Lysoesia, and i probably butchered that. Um, this animal was very similar to how the others uh, in shape, but basically the size of an elephant. It's a, about as big as this family has ever managed to get. And in fact, one of the largest uh, animals on the planet at the time before the rise of the dinosaurs. So these animals were all very, very similar in shape and they were equally good at surviving. The dicynodonts were a massive group that spanned from the Permian into the Triassic and diversified into to many different sort of groups, but it's Lystrosaurus that we're looking at. One specific little genus of the um, the, uh, the dicynodonts, with only about four species in it. The structure of the hips and shoulder joints of Lystrosaurus suggests that it moved in a sort of what's called a semi-sprawling gait, meaning that unlike modern mammals, uh, which have their legs underneath their body, and reptiles uh, that have theirs out at the side, it was partly splayed. So it had a slight bum wiggle when they walked, uh, if you think about it. In fact, somewhat like when alligators and crocodiles move. Theirs are semi-splayed out to the side, but also somewhat tucked under, underneath them as well. The forelimbs of these animals were even more ro- uh, robust than the hind limbs, meaning that more than likely they burrowed. Uh, this is actually one of the, the contributing thoughts as to how they survived. The extinction is by being able to burrow. Mm-hmm.
1: But it this... seems like a, it seems like a a, a good thing uh, that seems to work across the board. Whenever there's a mass extinction going on, just go well. We'll just go underground then.
0: Yeah, seems to work quite well. Mm. I mean, you know, you get all those preppers who make their underground bunkers.
1: Well, yeah, maybe they've maybe. maybe they've actually maybe they're not insane. Maybe they've just studied natural history all, gone, well, this is how all these the animals, animals survived. They, yeah. they went. They built themselves a little bunker.
0: This pig tortoise, if you will, size-wise, was about uh, between... The size 60 of a cent- pig and a tortoise. <laughs> well, between 60 centimetres in length to 2.5 metres in length. Um, so, yes, about the size of a pig uh, at their sort of largest.
1: That's quite a variable, though.
0: But that's between the four species. Oh, that's
1: the species different. Oh, species. yes, OK. Uh,
0: with an average being... i well, an average being about 90 centimetres. Uh, depending upon the species as well. Now, these are stem mammals, which means that they are more closely related to mammals than to reptiles. They often get the name of mammal-like reptiles, but this isn't an accurate name and is somewhat out of date. They are not reptiles and they're not mammals. They're their their own little group that are closer to mammals than they are to reptiles. And that also includes all of the other members of the dicynodonts as well. But also in this same group is the Gorgonopsids, the Theracephalians, the Dimetrodons, basically a large group of animals that we tend to lump with dinosaurs and reptiles, but certainly aren't. In fact, we've covered Dimetrodon as well. We're now building up a decent repertoire of uh, Permian-era species on this podcast. We should do a Permian podcast with just those ones. Because of this, uh, we would assume that their skin is sort of a mix of both scales and uh, mammal-like skin, but we actually have an answer to what their skin looked like thanks to a, an amazing yet sad fossil that has been found. And I say sad because of the circumstances of how these animals probably died.
1: they get flayed?
0: No, they starve to death. Yeah. And, um I
1: don't know which is worse. Nice I way. think being flayed is worse. worse. Well,
0: if there, if there had been something going around flaying things in the Permian era, I'm... Um, <laughs> I'm sure that there would have been a fossil of them found. But this incredibly mummified specimen, uh, in fact, one of a few of them, was discovered in the Karoo Basin in South Africa. Uh, it was in 2022. From this uh, that from this specimen, it revealed that Lystrosaurus had dimpled, leathery and hairless skin. So we know it's not scaly like a reptile, but we know that it's not furred like a mammal. So it's almost sort of hippo-like, I suppose. Looks,
1: looks like a big-naked mole rat.
0: Like a leather couch, I suppose. Yeah. Um, And uh, this was from an incredibly well-preserved Lystrosaurus mummy that hailed from the early Triassic around 251 million years ago. When the region was yet again experiencing these extreme weather events, often that meant that there was immense dry and arid conditions. We thought to have contributed to the demise of these animals as they starved to death by a dried up uh, watercourse. They had died in a position where they'd sort of collapsed. And then it looks like rain or well, rain or mud had then moved in and covered them. So they weren't too far away from being able to find a drink, which is even even more sad that these animals, you know, dried out on the surface because of that. And then were covered over by, uh, by rain and, and mud. Yes, very sad for them, but also amazing for us. And these are amazing specimens that, that were found in, in uh, 2022. So the ju- they were thought to be juveniles uh, and sub-adults, um, demonstrating that the life expectancy uh, of all of these animals at this time still recovering from this Permian mass extinction was suffering, but as a result of the conditions of the world getting over the great dying. They obviously came out the other side, not those individual ones but Lystrosaurus as a species. And during the early Triassic, with almost all competition extinct, they were, well, soon, the most dominant animal on the planet. They were dominating Southern Pangaea, the mass continent, uh, and continued for millions of years. Uh, At least one unidentified specimen of this genus survived the end Permian mass extinction, and then went on to thrive and sort of re-radiate into a number of species, forming, forming the, uh, the genus itself, becoming, at one point, the most common group of terrestrial vertebrates during the early Triassic. For a while, in fact, 95% of all land vertebrates were Lystrosaurus. What? No other animal on the planet has had such total dominance as Lystrosaurus. Wow. It- Kind of mad to think about it that if you went back to the early triassic period and were wandering around your wildlife book would basically just be a picture of a lystrosaurus and that's it mm. you know everything else is, is is it's just the lystrosaurus pretending to be something else <laughs> yeah yeah just a bit of context here as well how long it took for the earth to recover from that permian extinction uh, complete ecological recovery took, like I said before, 30 million years, and that spanned that early and middle Triassic period, and and Lystrosauruses took full advantage of this. Their distribution as well, because Pangaea was one giant landmass, they've been found right the way across most of these bone beds, most abundantly in Africa, uh, and to a lesser extent, what is now uh, modern day India, China, Mongolia, uh, Europe, Russia, uh, and Antarctica as well. Now, interesting enough, Antarctica at this point was not over the South Pole. Antarctica at this point was sort of up kind of where Australia is today, and Australia was sort of bolted onto the top of it. Britain, if you're wondering, was sort of smushed somewhere in the middle between North America and most of Russia. So we're sort of smashed into the middle bit.
1: Smashed into the middle of a Cold War.
0: Basic, well, actually, it had a hot war. Um, right up, uh, in the middle of probably quite a deserty area. In fact, you can see some of these sediments that come from the Permian era if you go and the early Triassic as well. Uh, anywhere that's got blood red sands is usually uh, a good indicator of those areas that were laid down. If you go down towards Minehead, um, certainly in Somerset, you'll see some of these blood red sand. In fact, South Devon as well has the same because it is right onto the edge of Triassic age rocks as well. We've focused on how this species has managed to just absolutely uh, walk through a major mass extinction, survive, radiate out and become the dominant species on the planet. It total world domination is within its lovely little grip. <laughs> um, but we now turn to its other amazing feat. Uh, and that is how this species showed scientists that the Earth moves. Now, around the start of the 20th century, we had various theories being unsuccessfully attempted to explain many geological uh, and geographical processes that were going on, the main one being continental drift. Now, Mm -hmm. believe it or not, this is a fairly recent, a fairly recent sort of accepted theory. And for those out there who aren't sure what a theory is, because when we talk about theory in a non scientific Context, we're going, I've got a theory. And you think of it in more terms of like, well, you know, I've got a thought.
1: Conjecture, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But in the truest terms of a scientific theory, like the theory of relativity or the theory of evolution, it is as certain as we can be about a process in science. So whenever people go, well, evolution is just a theory, it's not theory in the sense of what most people think of it. It is very much it is as proven as we can possibly prove it. But theories are also open to change as well if some better evidence comes along to prove it. Or disprove it, sorry. So up until fairly recently, the theory of continental drift was actually not an accepted thing. Um, Up until the 70s, in fact. So quite a long time for us to not have any idea of how the Earth moved. It's very accepted these days and we just don't even question it. But around the start of the 20th century, like I say, a lot of these uh, sort of thoughts of how the, the Earth might have been moving were taking effect. So in 1912, the meteorologist Alfred Wagner uh, described what he called continental drift, an idea that culminated 50 years later in the modern theory of plate tectonics. Now, why on Earth are we talking about plate tectonics? You might be uh, you wondering. Well, they're everywhere. Well, <laughs> yeah, plates everywhere.
1: No, I meant the Lystrosauruses were everywhere.
0: Well, yes. The discovery of Lystrosaurus fossils at Coalsack Bluff, the Transantarctic Mountains, by Edwin H. Colbert and his team in 1969 helped prove a plate tectonics and strengthen this theory to basically, you know, the scientific community. Since Lystrosaurus had already been found in the lower Triassic of southern Africa as well as India and China and Russia, uh, basically proved that continents move, the continents reshape, uh, and are continuously shaping and recycling uh, with subduction in parts of the Atlantic and and the Pacific, where plates slip underneath each other and new landmasses are pushed up uh, in places like India, uh, where it's pushing into the Asia plate, creating the Himalayan mountains. So these animals basically proved that whole process, which is absolutely fantastic. Some of the adaptations that they possess, growth marks in fossilised tusks of Lystrosaurs, uh, living in Antarctica some 250 million years ago, during the Permian at this point, um, suggested that they could actually enter prolonged states of torpor. So this would mean that they would be able to hibernate. And this is some of the oldest evidence as well of hibernation uh, in vertebrate animals, indicating uh, that torpor arose in vertebrates before mammals and dinosaurs even evolved. So one of these one of these uh, ways that they might have been able to survive through this Permian extinction, being able to burrow and go to sleep for long periods of time. One of the more recent theories uh, is that the extinction event reduced the atmosphere uh, sorry reduced the atmosphere's oxygen content uh, and increased its carbon dioxide content. So many terrestrial species died out because they found breathing too difficult. Uh, It's therefore been suggested that Lystrosaurus um, became dominant because its burrowing lifestyle made it able to cope with an atmosphere of stale air. And that specific features uh, of its anatomy were also part of this, including a deep-barreled chest that uh, accommodated large lungs, short internal nostrils uh, that facilitated rapid breathing, and high neural spines uh, on its, its backbone, it gave it greater leverage uh, to allow its muscles to expand and contract its chest, basically being able to pull in as much air as it possibly could. <laughs> However, there are weaknesses uh, in all of these points as well, because there always are when it comes to people proposing ideas of how animals did things based on fossils. Um, the chests of all Lystrosaurs were not specifically larger in proportion to the size of other dicynodonts. Uh, that became extinct. Uh, Although Triassic disanodonts appear to have longer neural spines than their Permian counterparts. So there are bits going backwards and forwards on both of these. There is a suggestion as well that Lystrosaurus was actually able to survive and dominate by being semi-aquatic and living in and around waterways, which would have made it easier to survive because there was always going to be water where it, it was hanging out, whether it was coastal or not. Uh, the most specialised and largest animals uh, are basically at risk of mass extinction in a lot of these uh, situations. And this may may explain why such an unspecialized animal as Lystrosaurus uh, may have been able to actually get through some of these uh, extinction events. They weren't specialists. They basically just bumbled along looking for plants to eat uh, and even dig them up with those tusks. So they may have just been able to get by by the simple fact that they themselves were not that special but they became special mm-hmm. so that is a definite way that they may have been able to uh, to escape and survive one theory that has also been put forward that i quite like uh, for lystrosaurus according to uh, a paleontologist is perhaps the survival of lystrosaurus was simply just a matter of luck which i quite like
1: luck is underrated yeah
0: we don't have lystrosaurus anymore So what on earth happened to them? Luck ran out. (laughs) Well, their luck ran out, yeah. The (laughs) Lystrosaurus didn't really go extinct in the senses that they were all wiped out in one big hit, like a lot of species. They were a very successful species, and almost certainly the ancestor of many later Dysynodonts in the Triassic period. These later dicynodonts became more and more specialized, and they themselves were eventually, uh, would fall into extinction, uh, with the end of the Triassic period being replaced by, well, dinosaurs. Most people think of the Triassic being a period where the dinosaurs were around in their full force, but they certainly were just getting a foothold at this point. Um, and it's only when the, the end Triassic extinction happened that they really were able to take over. So there is our plucky little survivor. Personally, one of my favourite little non-dinosaur prehistoric creatures. Which, sadly, you can't like, seem to get like a uh, Lystrosaurus toy or anything. I've never certainly seen one.
1: You have to make your own. You have the 3D printed one.
0: Can't even find a 3D printed one. Unless You're I can sure maybe... Make it yourself. Yeah, okay. make one myself. I'll have to get good at designing. <laughs> yeah. They are a fantastic species um, and certainly one that deserves far more recognition. They're a true survivor and have proved, well, scientific theories. Very nice. But, Shall we move on from our plucky little surviving Lystrosaurus and head mm-hmm. into our mailbag? Let's do it. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's mailbag, um, and we're going to start things off with last week's uh, question. Say last week, we actually sort of deferred it a whole week as well, didn't we, because we did. of our interview with uh, with Tony Barnes from End Extinction. Um, mm-hmm. But this question was, what animal, living or extinct, would you want to ride into battle? Uh, and we've got a few responses as uh, for that one. Um, Jen Babs says, because I'm an arse or because I'm practical to the end, I reckon a triceratops would be the best solution. The physique of all other animals coupled with potential challenging behavior would make for uh, fitting of equipment very difficult. A saddle of most other animals wouldn't stay in place. Also, the bony frill would provide protection without me having to add any extra equipment. That's fair enough, you know. There's there's not many animals as physically sort of terrifying, I suppose. They're not really terrifying, but if that came towards you uh, as a triceratops, that'd be pretty bad. Um, Lisa Pie Gorman uh, has put Quetzalcoatlus, uh, and to be honest, yes, I think I would go with that. I mean, who doesn't want a murderous death stork the size of a giraffe? Uh,
1: That's the episode that she was in.
0: Oh yes, yeah, so I completely forgot about that. Mm. God, that's going back quite a way. When we that's... were young. Yes, yeah. Back in the back in the the mists of time. Yeah. <laughs> and Karen Kuhn Wright has put Brontops, uh, otherwise known as Megacerops, which is a Brontothere. So rhino-looking animal, but with uh, a bit on the end. Mm-hmm. It, for those of you who aren't fully aware, the best way to describe it is. The two animals that are talking about dandelions in Ice Age. Yeah. They are brontotheas, which is even more ridiculous because, well, they didn't exist during the Ice Age. They had gone extinct during the Eocene. So, uh, hey-ho.
1: <laughs> One of the many many problems of that film. Obviously very much overshadowed by um, the horrific inclusion of those two possums, who I've said on this podcast before, genuinely wish they died. I generally wish they would just, they just died immediately as soon as they were shown. They immediately died and we wouldn't have to deal with any of that absolute gash.
0: Fair them. enough. I mean, hate, I, hate, I think the whole hate them. dinosaur episode was a bit, uh, the dinosaur uh, movie was a bit rubbish. But, well, yeah. and they
1: were in it, so they didn't make it better. They made it even well, worse.
0: True. I hate them. Yep. A- <laughs> I didn't realize you had such rage towards them. They're just the worst. They're the worst characters ever,
1: ever been put on screen ever
0: that's that's a bold statement right there
1: yeah <laughs> I've, i stand i will die on this hill
0: <laughs> well i think we should almost have a different question to what i was planning for uh <laughs> for the this week's listener question what being, hill would yeah, you yeah, die on yeah <laughs> what what animal uh, what character you is the worst one ever uh yeah. but this week's listener question that we're going to go for is what is your favorite animal call or sound
1: oh nice
0: Drew, what do you uh what what's what's that that animal call that you know or sound that you just absolutely love it's a really tricky one um mm.
1: it's really tricky because there's, there's there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of really good sounds out there there's a lot of very good vocal chords, sax guttural <laughs> rumblings uh the whole shebang yeah there's some really good i mean alligator noises are great that really deep low rumble, love that. I even like, even though it's some people quite find it quite annoying. I've quite always enjoyed the ah, of a uh, of an Indian peafowl. Uh, I wonder just what that was because
0: the sound cut out slightly there. So oh, did I it?
1: Was... Oh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> no,
1: it didn't cu- Oh, it cuts out. No, yeah. Our actually...
0: microphones don't like us doing peacock sounds. Our microphones
1: sounds, don't apparently. like doing peacock sounds, apparently. <laughs> yeah anyway i don't know what my favorite would be i like the european tree frogs as well that mm. um that uh just that has got to work well you've got to work as well this um, is true yeah it's tricky I tr- it's tricky i don't i'm not quite sure what my favorite is i like I never actually heard it myself but i, heard, I like the, the call of a night jar that's nice as well a weird sort of like
0: wobbling see now my money would have been if i had to uh you know, a guess as to what you were going to say. My money would have actually been on the sound of tortoises mating.
1: And, uh, yeah, but like, it's funny. It's funny, <laughs> and it has. There's a. There's a lot. There's a lot to like there for the comedic um, perks of it. But I don't think I would describe it as my favorite noise of just a, a tortoise having sex. It's, it's not my go-to. Yeah. What oh, about
0: yours?
1: Enough. What about what about yours? I I've, I've thrown what? a few a few out there.
0: Well, mine. I mean, you actually hit on one of mine, which was the alligator um, mating call, uh-huh. uh, which is that deep rumble that is caused by them vibrating and and uh, you know making such deep air sort of sounds with their their throats, and it it vibrates through your body. You feel it in your lungs. It's such an uh-huh. odd sensation. That, and I would have to say, purely because of how much. It just has a an instant uh, emotional connection. in My head is the sound of Indian ringneck parrots. Oh yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So I, yeah I, just I yeah, I like that as well. Hearing nice. that, and I would say as a as a as a final one, like I say, there are far too many of these that are just a really lot. good, and most of them are birds for the obvious reason that yeah, for sure, yeah, birds are just the masters of making amazing sounds. They're um, the masters
1: of pizzazz of
0: yeah. The no one's of, uh, off like a bird, no, exactly. Yeah, um, the other one that I would say is actually two birds is Australian magpies and kookaburras calling at the same time, and it's sort of a dawn chorus thing that you only get in, in certain parts of Australia. But it is just it's almost like the soundtrack to Australian morning. It's just I don't think there's any better sounds coming from two birds, you know, at the same time,
1: yeah. And you mix it's that in cool. with um. You mix that in with a bogan, you've got yourself a soundscape, haven't you?
0: Oh yeah, starting his V eight. Yeah. yeah.
1: First, first thing <laughs> in the morning,
0: shouting at shouting at Sharon to get the getting the, yeah. getting the uh, They're going down the bottle. Yeah. 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 Nothing. Nothing cries peaceful, tranquil yeah. Australia other than that that exact scene you're going with.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> if you want to uh, to answer what your favourite one is. Um, you can do so on our Facebook page uh, where that will be going up. It's gone up now, actually. Um, you, can, uh, you can put your answer in the comments. And also, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that on our Facebook page, our Twitter page. We're also uh, contactable through our email as well, which is thenathistorycovered at gmail.com. In fact, mm-hmm. we haven't got an email this week. Courageous.
1: Uh, Why aren't you e- emailing us? Why aren't you sending us yeah. messages, emailing us? uh yeah. post money you need money to- money
0: <laughs> um you need to be g- sending congratulations to drew so uh, uh,
1: yeah yeah absolutely yeah where I, yeah.
0: I think what we should do is next week send us have-
1: money it's going to be expensive
0: <laughs> send you we'll we'll uh we'll have a list of all the people who said uh, congratulations to you next week and, and read them out for you drew all
1: right sure okay
0: <laughs> put you on the spot there yeah um but like I say, you can get in contact with us at our email address, thanathistorycovered at gmail.com. Uh if you want to leave us a comment, like, subscribe, uh, or a view on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on, that is. Or a big
1: accepted. big dollop of cash.
0: <laughs> Just a dollop. <laughs> yeah, a sweet. Dollop. yeah,
1: that's sweet green. Well, it's not green in the UK. I
0: was gonna say it's not, yeah.
1: Give us some of those <laughs> sweet purples. Or oranges or blues, doesn't matter.
0: Okay, I was going to say, which one's a purple?
1: Twenties are purple. Ah. Uh, Gareth's living in a cash the money society. that much. <laughs> but- <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, um, you can do that on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on. So all that brings me to say is a big thank you uh, to you, Drew, for coming along. Uh, you're welcome. Raging against Monty Don and his his yeah. uh, his yeah. botanical nonsense.
1: Even even after those comments, still not as bad as those possums in Ice Age. <laughs> still not as bad.
0: Fair enough. We'll leave you for the rest of the week to sort of calm down, you know, yeah, or we'll somehow happens. be able to combine Monty Don and some possums and, uh, and see how raging you go. Yeah.
1: You. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. So true. Yes, you became the dominant life form on the planet. Absolutely. What did it cost you?
1: Um, what did it Nothing. Co- it didn't really cost anything. Ninety-five percent of the planet. Yeah. Of all the species on the planet, it cost. It cost my humility, because <laughs> there was no need to be humble anymore. <laughs>